in high school, most students tend to have one or two after-school activities. It could be a dance class, the debate team, a school sport, volunteer work, or maybe a part-time job. There is a wide selection on what kids can choose to do with their time after fulfilling their academic responsibilities. Many teens choose to spend their time doing something that helps them build their resume for getting into college. However, many times, teens don't have a choice on what their after-school activity gets to be. Like Ashley Solis, a high school senior and second-generation Mexican-American who divides her time between school and supporting her family by working as a strawberry picker in the fields of California. On today's episode, I speak to Ashley as well as filmmaker Emily Cohen Ibanez about their new documentary, Fruits of Labor, which stars Ashley. As the director of the coming-of-age documentary, Emily chronicles the day-to-day life of Ashley, an 18-year-old high school senior in Watsonville, California, who, like other girls her age, fantasizes about her perfect prom dress, steals away with her boyfriend, and dreams of what she'll do when she graduates college. Though graduating at all for Ashley is a reach because despite the fact that she's intelligent and motivated, she's oftentimes too tired from work or busy taking care of her younger siblings to actually attend school half of the time. Ashley's mother is an undocumented Mexican immigrant, forcing her to also work full time and help her mother take care of the family. Ashley works the graveyard shift at the strawberry processing plant, sometimes working after school until she needs to start the next morning. Adding to the family's stress is the fact that ICE raids continuously happen in their immigrant-heavy community, making Ashley afraid that she will soon be the sole breadwinner if her mother gets detained, despite being in the U.S. for close to 20 years. The film is an official selection of South by Southwest, and you can watch the full-length documentary on the pbs.org website or at fruitsoflaborfilm.com, or find the link in the description of this episode. Hola, yo soy Andrea Márquez, and this is Latinx, a show brought to you by La Red Hispana in the Hispanic Communications Network for the new generation of Latinx. This season, we want to focus on empowering you to follow your passion and be smart about chasing your dreams while speaking to Latinx from all over, de diferentes colores y sabores. Thank you for all of your support. Our community keeps growing, so make sure to join Latinx on Instagram. You can also find out more at our website at wearelatinx.com. I came back to uh, the Bay Area and I was teaching at a college. Uh, I was teaching visual sociology and came up with an idea to do a video collective with youth from Ashley's town and my college students. And Ashley was one of these young people. She was 15 at the time. And um, she just really stood out. Uh, she's a, a very um, dedicated person, you know, young woman. She not only cared about, you know, um, improving her own life, but that of her family and her community. And I just found that really uh, remarkable and someone who was, you know, had a maturity for her age and um, a very beautiful way of seeing the world, which you see in Fruits of Labor. So the relationship started there. Mm-hmm. And then it was really after the 2016 election that I'd observed that all the young people in our video collective 
most of them were all going to work in the field. Yeah. And what was being, you know, what I was able to observe was there was a labor gap. So undocumented adults um, were being too afraid to go work in the fields and the factories where they were susceptible to I those places that were susceptible to ice raids. So, you know, the thinking would go then, oh, this white working class, the angry white working class that voted Trump in would be taking these jobs, but that's not actually what happened. What was happening were young people, oftentimes uh, born in the United States, kids of undocumented parents often were then taking these jobs in the fields and the factories. And mind you, children have worked in the fields for since slavery in this country. It's an, one of the areas, a lot of people don't realize, one of the areas in our economy that doesn't have worker protections. So that's why a young person like Ashley or as young as 12 years old can work and uh, limitless hours. In California, there's a little more restriction. So like 40 hours a week, supposedly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's really, when I observed that, I said that there's a story here that's not being told in the mainstream media. And this, I feel like this story needs to be told. You know, we were seeing things um, on the US-Mexico border that were so important around, you know, um, these cruel conditions of detention centers. But what wasn't being told is that everyday terror as you moved away from the border into towns like Ashley's, right? And, and all these children who were basically filling a labor gap that was created by these draconian immigration policies and, and this uptick in ice raids. So with that observation, I approached Ashley about it. Mm -hmm. You were entering your last year at high school at the time and said, hey, at first it was gonna be a short. And we did, we published it in The Guardian, uh, which is, you know, The Guardian newspaper online. And, um, but I had realized, you know, there's, this is really rich. Ashley has such a beautiful, rich way of seeing the world. And something that I had also noticed was the coming of age genre, which is a classic American genre, wasn't being afforded to women of color, especially working women of color. I hadn't seen it. And so I'm like, well, this is worthy to be told. And it's something that I want to see. And I was so lucky that Ashley, you know, had the courage to say yes. And Ashley, why did you decide to say yes? I was in this group called Youth Growing Justice. I think I was like 14, I started with that group. Um, so we would just explore like the different issues in our community, which for us was violence and justice and well, food sustainability. And many of this stuff, it was something I was struggling within my family. So when Emily approached me about the project at first, um, I, I was a little nervous because I do like doing the behind the camera. I always gravitate to do that. I love being behind the camera. And like, you know, I just like how stories unfold that way. And Oh yeah, like I said, I was a little nervous, but um, I started thinking, you know what? I've never seen this type of film out there where you see um, a girl going to school and also going to work at the same time and trying to, just trying to hustle and trying to make money for the family and trying to like just keep up to date with everything that's going on around the world. So it was something that I was willing to do because I knew that a lot of people in my community, a lot of youth people were going through this and I just wanted, you know, their voices to be heard as well as mine. 
and just because we connect within the stories in many ways many of my friends that I have most of them would drop out because you know that's what they thought it was supposed to be that way you know if the family doesn't have money they go ahead and go to work and forget about school and you know say they're gonna come back but we never end up coming back so I think it was um something big that was worth going ahead and like you know exposing my whole life because I knew there were smart people like me my community is so foreign for a lot of people and I think it's incredibly important that's why I love that you guys are doing this because we don't get to see it and one thing is talking about it but once you actually see it live it breathe it it's such a different experience so if if you could actually give us a little bit of what your day-to-day looks like my high school days look like um I would go to work late night at a strawberry factory and what we would do is just you know um, that strawberry was used for the same strawberry ice cream that we ate in our high school was the same strawberry we were doing the same like small little um what are they called just like, like those cups yeah they're just small cups frozen strawberries and so those same strawberries that we ate in school that's what I was doing at night and we would just like sort out what was good and what was bad and it was just what 10 hours to eight hours in the same like banda just uh, sometimes I felt like I was so dizzy just staying at that thing go over and over and over and I was like I just want to go to sleep but um that's how it was and if I was too tired it was hard for me to go to school but if I was ready to go and I was ready just to go to school I would right away you know have just 30 minutes of sleep and go to school right away after my 6 a.m. shift left. Um, my summer was just working every day and not really having fun how all my other friends were having. Um, I would always get invited to parties, but I couldn't attend to them because I'd, I'd have to be working instead. So it was just like having to divide myself up into an employee and a student. So it was really hard and rough. According to the U.S. labor laws for farm workers, the child labor protections in agriculture are lower than in other industries. For most jobs, the normal minimum age is 16 years, with some exceptions. But in agriculture, it is 14 years. However, in some states, kids 12 or under may work outside of school hours in non-hazardous jobs with parental consent. So what is the average minimum wage? Amid the pandemic, more than 2 million farm workers were deemed essential in order to sustain food supply chains, and they earned just $14.62 per hour on average in 2020, far less than even some of the lowest paid workers in the U.S. labor force. At this rate, farm workers earned just under 60% of what comparable workers outside of agriculture made in 2020. The wage paid to most farm workers with H-2A visas, known as the Adverse Effect Wage Rate, was even lower, with a national average of $13.68 per hour. And when we begin to think of undocumented workers, this number, of course, is even lower. And let's not forget that they also have to pay taxes. The IRS estimates that about 6 million unauthorized immigrants file individual income tax returns each year. Research reviewed by the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office indicates that between 50% and 75% of unauthorized immigrants pay federal, state, and local taxes. Is Fruits of Labor the title a little bit of a play on the strawberry factory? 
Yeah, the, so the idea is it's sort of a play on words. So there's the fruits of labor as um, it's a saying, right? You know, we enjoy the fruits of our labor, mm-hmm. um, but also that's the actual fruit itself that's being labored. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the play on, on word is around fruits of labor um, and really putting attention to like work and, and, and what that what that really is. And we have kind of ideologies around work that, you know, um, really in well-intentioned, you know, in the high school announcement when the principal says, dream big, work hard. Mm-hmm. And that's something as immigrant families were often told, if you just keep working, work, 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 you're gonna get to the American dream. And that's not always the case. Sometimes if you work hard, yes, there's certain things we can work hard towards and accomplish certain dreams. But if you're in certain fields of work or, you know, they can become these really oppressive work schedules that actually hold us back mm-hmm. from our dreams. And so it's also looking at that a little crit- more critically. There's a conversation between be, behind, you have to take a break and we're all overworked. But I think there's always this missing piece that resonates with me as daughter of immigrant parents, where I'm like, my parents could never take a break. No, not, not everyone has the privilege of being like, okay, I'm gonna go take a vacation and go party with my friends now. I know the message I have received with it, but what would you hope that whoever watches this comes out feeling or knowing or understanding? I do notice in my community that there's a lot of stuff we often normalize, knowing that that is not correct to do. And it's not because we want to do it. It's just more because um, we just saw that all the time, you know? So something we embedded in our life. So I would just, you know, I just want to give hope to those youth people that there is a way out of it. You don't have to normalize it, even if it means you break barriers in your traditions and stuff. Um, Also, often in high school, I would often hear, like, you know, school's not for everybody. So that's what a lot of people would sometimes gravitate to, you know. Um, If I guess that's my pathway and that's how it's going to be, then um, sometimes that's the only not the hope, but the only advice that times they tell you. So it's often something you sometimes feel like, you know, all right, then school's not gonna be for everybody, then it's okay if I'm part of that too. And I just wish that, um, you know, sometimes if people were actually there and understood what was really going on and just not think that um, I'm not going to school because of, just because I don't want to or, um, just, um, you know, just to be able to open up to those um, teachers and trust them um, because they're there for you. Um, I remember being scared of not telling my teacher what was going on because I felt like I was going to be the one getting in trouble. And now that I think about it, it's like there was this help there that I didn't know whether that was there. And I just want those youth people to understand that your teacher, your counselors, they're there for you to help you. Yeah, and I think to build on what Ashley's saying, you know, like you're talking about a lot of the teachers, when they've seen this, they didn't realize a lot how many students of theirs are doing the night shift. And because night shifts aren't legal, actually, for children, kids are, the young folks are are scared to tell their teachers because they don't want to lose their job. So another thing is looking at, well, you know, we can um, stigmatize young people doing these jobs and their families, but how about paying a living wage to adults and so that the children don't have to go to work and that they can focus on what the real work is that they need to do, which is go to school or, or, or you know, create or, or learn a trade that they 
feel passionate about and that are respecting. There's nothing um, inherently bad about field work. You know, we all need food, but why then are we denigrating this work, having these unfair work hours, really, you know, difficult work conditions, underpaid, wage theft. I mean, it, the list goes on. And this, we've known about this for hundreds of years. And we've had struggle after struggle after struggle. And we're still here. I mean, yes, there have been improvements, but when are we gonna say, hey, you know, this is, it's work that is actually skilled. Mm -hmm. There's knowledge. You see, Ashley, just so you know, when we were filming Ashley in the field, we couldn't keep up, remember Ashley? Yes. I was like, slow down, girl, like slow down. We can't capture it, you know, because she goes so fast. Um, and understanding how to pick the berry. Um, and it's very difficult work. Strawberries, you're bent over. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of knowledge there with Youth Growing Justice. What's so incredible is Ashley, the young people and your families advocated to get a piece of city land to have their own community garden, which you see in the film, to because they have deep knowledge, indigenous planting knowledge that is valuable to all of us and how to grow food. And, you know, you guys are still fighting the cities threatening to bulldoze the garden now, you know, but these are ways that communities shouldn't have to do all these things to feed themselves. They should be in a better position where, yes, you can share the knowledge of growing the food, but that you have a more time and you have, you know, the funds to actually buy healthy foods that you're picking, right? So there's all these things that there's so many layers. What's beautiful about it being Ash's coming of age is there's so many things that your life and what you speak to communicate to, whether it's unfair work conditions, whether it has to do with gender dynamics in the family. That was a big one. Yeah. And what we were always in conversation with, I mean, is a deep collaborative relationship between Ashley and I and reflecting together on the certain conditions, right? Um, that was one of the goals of the film and I thought was cool was that we took spaces, we created um, writing workshops where, you know, with, you know, mm -hmm. some grant funds where Ashley could take a pause from work for like a week at a time and we could really reflect on what was going on here, you know, mm -hmm. and that was really meaningful. I mean, I think it was, it, for me, it was very meaningful. I learned so much and was able, I think it built our trust. I yeah, don't know what it, it was like for you, but. Yeah, um, I always tell Emily um, when we first started doing our co-writing um, sessions, um, I remember telling her, I don't like to write. I just, that's not my thing. Like, um, I, if you put me to do an essay, I won't do it because I don't know how to start. So she gave me down some words to start off and she came back in 10 minutes and I had like a whole page full. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of feelings that sometimes I suppress because of how my life is so fast so that I don't stop and have that break or, or that reflection to just analyze all the stuff that is going in my life. So I did learn a lot from that, that, you know, sometimes I just have to talk out my feelings and um, it was a big thing for me to heal and reflect as well on what was going on in my life. And I got to understand that, you know, there was a lot of stuff I was doing at a young age that I beated myself up all the time thinking I wasn't doing enough at the age I was doing. And I was all like, you know what, um, I'm 16, 17, and I've done all this, so it was a really, um, it was a really big part for my life to understand that I had done a lot already, and it was something I 
normalized so much that I didn't know what was going on in my life. What is one thing that you learned about yourself through this process? I felt like I wasn't doing enough for my family. I felt that I was, you know, just getting and getting and not giving nothing to my family. So that's something I learned that I was a big part for my family. So you felt like I you was, were getting and not giving or the yeah. other? Okay. Yeah. Like getting and not giving. And I was like, I'm a bad daughter for asking my mom, I need this, I need that. But she've always told me like, you don't ask me for nothing. And I was like, you know, I got to understand that I was doing so much at a young age, thinking that that was something I was supposed to do and, you know, fun and playing around by the age of 15, that was, you know, irrelevant to do. Going through all of this journey, what is something that you think you're going to start doing differently now? Uh, I actually took breaks now and I actually put limits to stuff and I know how to say no now. <laughs> Boundaries. Yes, yes, Very yes. Nice. So, that's so important that's that everyone yeah. should learn that it's it's really hard that's something big i could say that i broke oh i break the barrier for my family by also showing my sisters that it's okay to say no it's okay to say no i don't want to do this and that's something big for me yeah and can i brag about you yeah. a little bit <laughs> <laughs> so not only that because i mean that's been a discussion that we've we've had and um but uh, Ashley's full, you're full time, right? Mm -hmm. Full time at school now at Hartnell College and pursuing a certificate in business. Uh, do you want to, and she's um, yeah. really looking to change the way the strawberry, create a model that changes the strawberry, the, you know, for strawberry production. I don't know if you want to say a little bit. Yes, I recently started, well, somebody connected me with Santa Clara, Santa Clara State University to do a Latino, um, they have this whole course for Latino business owners who want to start um, their first business and they help you out and set you up. So that's what I'm doing right now. And hopefully I could get my certificate with them so I could start, um, I wanna get an acre or two, depending how it goes. And I wanna start my own farm and hopefully um, start a whole new model instead of being that hierarchy model that there is in the fields. I want it, I want it to be different. I want um, the farm workers to have something they own and have something that they could take home. Because often um, I noticed that when we were picking strawberries, we would get in trouble if we would take the strawberries because that was money they were using. So um, it's just something that like, you know, in your breaks, you don't have no designated place to go and take your breaks or no like the bathrooms don't seem right at times or sometimes the bathrooms you have to walk so much so I just want to give them that space where they're able to almost like a garden model that they have so they could go have their lunch go take whatever veggies or fruits they want home so just something um, more that's more accommodating for them that's ambitious and so cool I mean I that's amazing that you're doing that did you see a difference pre-COVID, post-COVID, during COVID, or how was all of that experience for you? Um, well, I actually start, stopped working there after my senior year. So I think that's when COVID was birthed. Yeah, yeah. So you, luckily you had stopped working. Yeah, I stopped. But you saw what was yeah. going on in the community. Yeah. yeah, I know family members that still are working in the, um, in the fields and it was something they were really scared of because 
they had no secure job, no secure finance finances. So it was something where they had to be hopping from job to job. And with well, disemployment, it was really hard for some people that are under, well, that are doing everything by cash. They were not able to like qualify to get their benefits or nothing like that. So it was something that was really hard within my community, just because, I mean, for a while, they, there was no jobs in the fields until there was protocols. Um, but after that, um, I we did notice in the community that all the essential workers, they finally got recognized, but it was a little, it was happy, but at the same time, it took, it took a while for people to realize, you know, they are essential workers, they've always been. So, um, I mean, I just wish that they had a higher paying job or higher salary because they sell medicine. Yeah. Absolutely. That's one of the things, you know, it's like this window in which we are recognizing, um, you know, there's a little more of a recognition of frontline workers and the agricultural workers are frontline workers. But unfortunately, there's tends to be this discourse around heroism. And I don't think that's what people want. What people want is what you're saying, a livable wage and be treated with dignity and respect. You know, one thing that I've noticed, because I also do reporting work with The Intercept, is uh, farm workers are organizing around work conditions uh, of fire conditions, actually, with wildfires here in, in the West. And, um, and you know, they're either losing, they want hazard pay because they're losing work days, or they're being forced to work, you know, in really bad conditions. And so folks don't always realize when we're all trying to, you know, be indoors and put on our air filters, there's large portions of our economy of people who must work outside to make money and they don't have you know benefits or a stable job um so it's really kind of like contract work where you're you're paid for the to the point where you're not it's not even the day that you work you're paid per uh box of mm -hmm. strawberry or it's piecemeal or, or a bucket of raspberry mm -hmm. um and with covid even fields that used to pay wages are no longer paying hourly wages, but only doing the piecemeal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's in some ways has gotten, I would say more difficult. Yeah. It did get more difficult. Considering how payment changed, you can also imagine the number of hours that many of these workers had to put in to make ends meet. While farm workers reported working 45 hours per week on average, according to the Department of Labor. Those harvesting field crops and employees on dairy farms reported working an average of 54 hours a week. The national average for working hours is 40 hours a week. According to Farm Worker Justice, most farm workers do not receive commonplace benefits like sick leave, paid vacation, or health insurance. Because many agricultural employers are exempt from unemployment taxes, Numerous farm workers are not eligible for unemployment benefits, even though they perform jobs that are seasonal and intermittent. Despite the high level of poverty, most farm workers do not receive any public benefits like food stamps. These are among some of the many challenges that farm workers face. Although most migrants arriving are from Mexico or Guatemala and speak Spanish, there are also other indigenous communities where cultural and language barriers prevent them from assimilating into mainstream Latino culture, like Mixteco, Zapotec, Triqui, and Mayan, as some of the other languages spoken, apart from Spanish. 
These barriers make workers easy prey for employers. And additionally, because many are undocumented, they are more likely to accept substandard working conditions, wages, and housing conditions, rather than risking retaliation by complaining. Domestic uh, labor, so cleaning homes, businesses, uh, janitorial work, as well as agricultural work, that has vestiges, those were, you know, that was originally the work often done among slaves in this country. Um, and so it was associated with um, being black or brown, right? Um, and so when, you know, post-slave emancipation, and then we're getting into fast forward into, you know, the 30s, when you have the New Deal um, with FDR and where, you know, there's a whole, it's kind of revolutionary in some levels of what was happening to, you know, creating worker protections, very important across the board for, for Americans. But what happened was in Congress, there was what they call, you know, the Dixie Democrats at that time, they were from the South. And what was happening in the South was Jim Crow, right? And so it was a segregation of black and white. And still in this country, agricultural labor and domestic labor were associated with, with being black and or being brown. And so what happened was, is that first the Dixie Democrats, they wanted to exclude black people, um, you know, uh, indigenous peoples, immigrants, they wanted to exclude based on race um, and ethnicity. And they couldn't do that. that, that didn't work. So what they, the big negotiation, the compromise FDR did with the Dixie Democrats, is, okay, we'll just exclude entire sections of the economy, the two being agricultural, labor, and domestic. And that's what happened. And it's been like that till today. So even you have, for example, there's legislation in Congress has been for 10 years trying to raise the age to from 12 years old to 16 for being the minimum wage for working the fields. Can't even get it through the house. Mm -hmm. um, it's controversial because it could also be stigmatizing for families in poverty, but still, you know, where's the push around wage equity? And especially when you're getting a, and um, regulation rather than regulation of people documentation status, how about regulation of um, wage theft, you know? And by the way, what a lot of people don't realize is undocumented workers, they actually pay not only sales tax, they actually pay taxes through ITI and, um, you know, they're paying, there's a way for undocumented workers to pay taxes. Um, and so one of the things is, for example, this has to do with even then when you get, so there's the exclusion of agriculture and domestic workers from having worker protections, um, you know, as far as uh, regulation on wage, children, protection of children, by the way, it is one of the most dangerous forms of work. And yet we're comfortable with subjecting, you know, young, you know, children to this, um, the pesticides, the heat, um, the equipment, um, the out, well, the long work hours. But then also there's a segregation in our country around the way we treat undocumented versus documented workers. And so um, if you are um, low wage, there are bills and, and you can get into California law in which um, low income families are given a tax break. 
And these are current bills now in the California legislature. Well, legislation. Undocumented people aren't granted that. So even if you are a low wage income earner, you don't get the tax credit. Mm -hmm. You're still paying full. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, so that, and, and yet you're making, you know, um, minimum wage or under minimum wage. Why do you think you're the person to tell this story? Well, I think collaboratively, we, we were the people to tell the story. Being a Latina filmmaker, that is a part of my identity. And I didn't grow up doing farm labor, but I long identified with the movement and was part, even since high school, just uh, very dedicated. I think the experience of marginalization made me very strongly identify as Latina. Um, being, I grew up in very white place in Arizona and school and was discriminated against. And I, yeah, I really identified with Latinos and struggle. So that's one aspect. I think a deeper, even deeper one being the relationship that you and I were able to build. And that felt really authentic and felt right. Um, yeah. and that, you know, I think we both talked about we trusted each other yeah. and it, the trust has to go both ways we couldn't have done it without mm -hmm. and then it was really important for me now it's become a little more popular but to have a full team that's predominantly women of color and most of us are from immigrant families and that was kind of novel in the beginning when i was doing that more proposals i even had someone say oh that's cute but I, that's not going to mm -hmm. work why not you know we have the talent we have the skill Maybe people aren't recognizing it, but if you look at the craft in the film, it's, it's crafted very well. Um, and so our team is predominantly women of color, many of us from immigrant families. And I think that was really important. And, but we also recognize there's class differences and by keeping our lines of communication, our trust, mm -hmm. we can you know, work together to create what I think we, a, a film that we're proud of, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I still get surprised when people tell me, like, you worked that much, you did that much, how do you pick a strawberry up? And it's like, do I really have to explain it? But then I think, and it's like, yeah, it's a lot of people know, don't know about this workforce. They don't know how you pick up and cultivate everything. They don't know that at times you go ahead and when you're in the strawberry fields picking the strawberries, there's times you don't even want to get up because it even makes it worse for your back. You end up just like getting out of your circle crawling out. So I just wish people like treat it with dignity and you know, for the farm workers out there, you know, to not give up and to keep going, to not leave everything half place because there is a lot we still need to fight for. And um, for my youth people just to have hope and to keep going in education, I mean, it's a pathway that's working out for me. And it's just giving me like that light in my pathway to keep going and keep going. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode with Ashley and Emily. I encourage you to watch Fruits of Labor on pbs.org or fruitsoflaborfilm.com or check out the link in the description of this episode. Visit the Fruits of Labor website fruitsoflaborfilm.com for more information on where you can watch their screenings and subscribe to their newsletter. You can also support them by following them on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Fruits of Labor Film. As always, you can find all of this information in the description of this episode.
Remember to support us on Latinikis by rating this podcast on Apple Podcasts. As you know, this will help us continue to work on the show and bring on guests who inspire and motivate you. This is Latinikis. I'm your host, Andrea Marquez. Thank you for listening.